In today's episode, we have Dr. Rudrani Banik. She specializes in ophthalmology, neuro-ophthalmology, and headaches. She manages a wide spectrum of conditions affecting vision, as well as the complex connections between the eye and the brain. She combines traditional medicine and surgical treatments of the eye with nutritional and lifestyle approaches for a more integrated, holistic approach to vision and brain health. Welcome to the Kaka TV Podcast. Your source for all things health, happiness, and beauty. Dr. Rudrani, thank you so much for being with us here today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So I have a confession to make. I've never had a formal eye exam in my life. Only the very basic ones they do to, in driving school and, and in school, things like that. Ah, okay. <laughs> You're not alone, first of all. I know many people are probably, unless they have an issue, they probably never go to the eye doctor. But it is important. It is important to at least get a baseline at some point. Um, most people, it's recommended most people get a baseline eye exam by the time they're 40. So I have about two yeah. years. Okay. <laughs> you have two years. Yeah. There yes. you go. So even though I haven't had any eye problems myself, I do have macular degeneration on both sides of my family. And I know this is very common as we get older to need glasses when you even never had before. So I have a question. Is macular degeneration inevitable? or Is there anything that we can do about it? Mm-hmm. That's a wonderful question. So, um, so there are many different risk factors for macular de- degeneration. Um, uh, genetics is part of it. So definitely if there's a family history, um, there is a higher risk for it. But there are many other factors. And so this is all called, uh, it's called epigenetics, meaning other factors that influence our genes. And so um, lifestyle has a role, plays a role in terms of, you know, what, what you were eating, their nutrition, uh, perhaps blue light expo- exposure. It's not exactly clear yet from the research whether blue light can be potentially um you know, uh, increase the risk for macular degeneration. And then other things that we can't control, for example, and this is really interesting, um, pigmentation. So eye color and skin color and hair color has been, um, you know, certain um, kind of pigmentary uh, patterns have been associated with macular de- degeneration. For example, people who are who have lighter skin, uh, light eyes like blue eyes or green eyes and who are blonde, they have um, a higher risk for macular degeneration. It may have to do something with the level of pigment in the back of the eye as well because pigment is thought to be protective um so there are many many factors so it's not inevitable and uh, i'm really happy you asked this question because i'm actually i'm in the midst of finishing up um, a book on uh, ways to prevent macular degeneration using nutrition and lifestyle so um so i talk about all the the wonderful nutrients that provide us uh, with the protective benefits the antioxidants we need to um, hopefully stave off vision loss from this horrible condition And could you also describe what a cataract is and if there's anything we can do to prevent that or lessen the effects? 
Mm -hmm. Sure. So um, we all have inside our eye, we all have a natural lens and that lens uh, helps us focus for distance, for intermediate, like if you're at the computer or up close. And that lens is constantly changing shape uh, in our eye to help us focus at different distances. And when we're young, the lens is clear, it's transparent. And as we age, as we get older, the lens uh, starts to become a little harder. It starts to opacify a little bit also. So it takes on kind of a a yellowish color and um, eventually if it continues to progress it'll become very dark or even go brown or rarely even black in very very advanced cases and so when that lens changes um, color it's called a cataract so basically it's kind of like having um, like a filter over your vision. So imagine you know, you're looking out a window and it's clear and it's nice and clear, you can see well, but over time, if the window starts to get dirty, it starts to get opaque, you're not seeing as well. So that's what a cataract is. And um, there are natural ways to try to prevent cataracts. So I would say uh, the top two things are um, get a diet that's rich in antioxidants, lots of nutrients, um, uh, natural foods, and then also uh, UV protection is really, really important. So um, uh, UVA and UVB rays, um, which mainly come from the sun, are thought to be um, to kind of help cataracts progress. So if you can always, especially if it's sunny outside, always try to wear your sunglasses. And sometimes even on cloudy days, even though you may think, oh, I don't really need my sunglasses, some of those UV rays can still get through and potentially increase the risk for cataracts. Um, the other thing I do want to mention is that cataracts are so common and they happen as people get older. Um, I would say that in a sense, they are inevitable. If you live long enough, you will develop a cataract. But in terms of um, when it becomes symptomatic or when we have to do anything about it, that's, you know, it depends from person to person. So for example, um, in most people, usually by their late 50s, early 60s, they start to develop some degree of cataract, but doesn't necessarily mean that they have to have any treatment for it. Um, it's only if the cataract is um, is affecting their vision enough so that it starts to blur their vision or it prevents people from doing the things that they enjoy doing, that it's time to consider doing something about the cataract. So I've noticed from a few friends that they, when they were younger, they had maybe bright, clear blue eyes, but sometimes mm -hmm. some of them, when they age, their eyes start to turn brown and it doesn't look like a cataract. It's just the eye color mm -hmm. changes. Is there a reason and is that normal? Yeah. So, um, so many times people will say, oh, my eye color has changed as I've gotten older. And it's not necessarily the eye color that's changed. So the eye color is, it comes from the iris, which is, um, uh, it's, it's a pigmented structure in the eye that actually changes shape. And the center of the iris is the pupil, the dark spot right in the middle of the iris. And so um, the changes that happen as people get older are actually on the outside, meaning the cornea. And so the cornea is a clear kind of a dome-shaped structure that covers, it basically is the front part of the eye. And um, what can happen is in some people, um, especially if they have potentially high cholesterol or sometimes even high calcium levels in their blood, they can get these deposits in the cornea. And it's almost like a ring of um, kind of a whitish yellow ring on the outside um, around the colored part. So perhaps that's what you're noticing is um, a change in color because the cornea is changing. And sometimes that can be reversible, but um, but sometimes once that kind of that ringish structure develops or that, that opacity develops, um, it can't necessarily be reversible. I'm going to ask you a weird question. What are your thoughts on iridology? Is that a scam or is there any truth to it? 
So I've actually looked into this quite a bit because I've had patients who've asked me, you know, they've they've gotten their imaging done and they show me their their iris and they say, oh, you know, what do you think about this? This is what the iridologist said. So, you know, so iridology, first of all, is basically looking at the patterns on the iris, which is, again, the colored part and uh, you know, taking a very high resolution close up picture of the iris and looking at the patterns. And um, there are the, the iris in iridology has been mapped out to certain organs, other organs, so not the eye necessarily, but, for example, the liver, the heart, the kidneys, the immune system. So um, so uh, the people who developed iridology basically said, OK, if there's an abnormality here, if the pattern looks like this, then it may mean that you're having issues with your liver and you have detoxification issues or, you know, um, or cardiac issues or what, uh, whatever the abnormality may, may be. So, so there was a study done. Um, so iridology was developed by a German, um, uh, doctor, I believe he was an ophthalmologist. I can't be hundred percent sure he was an ophthalmologist, but, um, so, you know, in order to say whether it was true or not, whether it actually is correct or not, there was a study done, a blinded study where they took patients who had iridology done and, um, and then they kind of assessed what their general health was like and you know, if they had any significant medical issues and it didn't really correlate. So based off of that study, um, you know, it, it was not supportive that it, it's really, um, you know, factual, that it is scientific. But I know that there are many people out there who use iridology. So I think, you know, the jury's still out until more research is done. We really can't know for sure. I can tell you that there are certain conditions definitely that can impact the iris. So, for example, if somebody has diabetes, um, it can cause changes in the iris. It can cause new blood vessels to form if uh, blood sugar is not well controlled. So, definitely, there can be changes on in the iris or on the surface of the iris due to uh, systemic disease. And there are even iris tumors that show up. Um, I don't want to scare anybody, but um, you know, just to kind of give you an example of how something else going on in the body can show up in the eye, um, there are certain tumors that can show up on the iris because there's something else going on in the body. So uh, it's a little bit too early to know, though, about the iridology question. What is the one step everyone should take for optimal eye health? Oh, wow. Great question. Um, I don't know if I can give you just one step, but I can give you a couple. Uh, so I would say the the first thing is to, um, you know, coming back to your diet and what you're putting into your body. So our eyes are very delicate structures. There are many different kind of sub organs within the eye and um, and they're very susceptible to oxidative stress and oxidative damage. And oxidation is, is um, something that happens in the body. It's a normal process, but sometimes it can go awry. It can be too, there can be too much oxidation and tissues can get damaged. So think of, you know, kind of like um, if you have metal and you expose that metal to water and oxygen, eventually that metal is going to rust. And so the, the oxidation in the body is somewhat similar in the sense that if the body is exposed to certain um, toxins or metabolic byproducts, or if there are nutritional deficiencies, um, the body's tissues just can't maintain their structure and they start to quote unquote rust. And that can lead to cell death. It can lead to loss of function and structure. So, um, so basically to prevent that kind of oxidative damage, I, um, I always recommend a diet that's very rich in a range of plant-based um, antioxidants. And so uh, the best foods for eye health, and we can talk, you know, we can talk a lot more about this, but the best foods for eye health are plant-based, um, mainly uh, various colors, colored vegetables and fruits. So what I tell people is 
you know, to get that whole range of powerful antioxidants from your food, um, try to vary your diet. So most of us eat three meals a day. So let's say there's 21 meals in a week that we're eating. Um, try to have a different color of fruit or vegetable with every meal. So during that 20, you know, those 21 meals during the week, you're going to get your greens, you're going to get various shades of green, you're going to get your oranges, your yellows, your reds, and even purples and blues and blacks if you can. So try to vary that up and you'll provide your eyes with all the nutrients that they need to stay healthy. Um, and then the second part of that, you know, your question about what can we do to protect eye health is to make sure that, um, you know, once you're past the age of 40 or so, you do see your eye doctor regularly. So initially, maybe get a baseline exam and then ask your doctor, how often do I need to be seen? Uh, for some people, it's every five years. For some people, it's every two years. And for some people, it's every one year or even more often. And the reason is because there are a lot of eye conditions like macular degeneration or even cataract or glaucoma that in the very early stages have no symptoms whatsoever. They're completely asymptomatic. And the only way you would know that you may have this or be at risk for it is if you go see your eye doctor and you get a complete eye exam, including a dilated exam. So we use drops to put uh, that drops that we put in the eye. And basically what it does is it makes the pupil very large. It lets us see the retina and the optic nerve very well. So, um, so that's the kind of eye exam that you should get. So not just a glasses check, but a complete eye exam. Is there a connection between nutrition and conditions like dry eyes? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a very common question I get also. And there absolutely is. So um, dry eye is, you know, there are many reasons why people have dry eye, but there are some nutritional deficiencies that can lead to dry eye. And one of the most common ones, um, maybe not so common in, in Western countries, but certainly in some parts of the world is vitamin A deficiency. So um, lack of vitamin A uh, definitely can cause certain changes on the surface of the eye leading to dryness. The other thing is um, the, that the, the, um, the surface of our eye, our tear film, is it has oils in it. So there's a, a superficial oily layer, and those oils are benefited by omega-3 um, fatty acids. So you've heard, I'm sure you've heard of, or your audience hopefully has heard of um, healthy fats and unhealthy fats. So omega-3s are a type of uh, what we call long-chain fatty acid. It's a healthy fat. Um, it comes mainly from fish, but there are some plant-based sources as well. For example, uh, flax seeds, chia seeds. Some people believe hemp seeds are also rich in omega-3s. But um, the, there was a pretty large study done uh, called the Women's Health Initiative. And this was done back in the late 80s to early 90s. And what they did was they took a segment of this. The study had over 30 38,000 women in it, um, mainly nurses, and they followed them over many years. And they took a segment of that population, so about uh, 1,500 women, and they looked at their um, their incidence of dry eye, and they looked at their diets. And what they found was that the women who had higher omega-3s in their diets, and mainly this was coming from fish two or three times a week, they had less incidence of dry eye. And the women who had almost no omega-3s in their diet, they had they had much worse dry eye. So um, so definitely, you know, make sure you get your vitamin A. Um, it can be found from um, animal products, for example, dairy, cheese, um, certain meats, liver, for example, is high in vitamin A and fruits as well. Uh, certain fruits like mangoes are high in vitamin A and vegetables like green leafy vegetables, but also get your omega threes to try to prevent against dry eye. Are there any eye health issues that are specific to women or to men? 
There are. Um, so there are many eye conditions that have a prevalence of, you know, one sex or the other. Um, but I would say in terms of um, uh, in general, I would say that dry eye is much, much more common in women. Um, there definitely is a hormonal component to this. And in my practice, I would say, um, you know, if I'm seeing a woman and she's past postmenopausal, um, and she does not have dry eye, I would be surprised because the vast majority of women who are postmenopausal have some degree of dry eye um, and don't exactly understand the relationship between uh, estrogen and progesterone with, um, with dry eye, but there definitely is a link I've seen in my practice. Um, then in terms of other eye conditions, so there are... Um, there are many other eye conditions that are autoimmune in nature, meaning um, the body is reacting to itself in some way. It's causing inflammation. And so there are many ocular autoimmune conditions. Uh, some people believe dry eye is an autoimmune condition, and it can be when it's associated with other uh, conditions, for example, rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or even something called Sjogren's disease, which can cause dry eye and dry mouth. But um other autoimmune diseases that tend to affect women more than men that affect vision as well include thyroid problems. So, for example, uh, autoimmune thyroid disease, either Graves' disease or Hashimoto's thyroiditis, uh, are associated with um, many uh, ocular symptoms. And then there are some other autoimmune conditions like multiple sclerosis, which can also have uh, cause vision problems. And much it's all these conditions are much more commonly seen in uh, in women than men. Um, now, if you ask me which conditions are more common in men, um, I would say that um, there are certain types of um, eye strokes that are more common in men than women. Uh, again, we don't know exactly why, but, uh, but I've definitely seen that in my practice and it's also been published in literature. I notice the more time I spend indoors or on devices, the more I squint in daylight when I'm outside because I'm in Miami, it's very sunny here. So in all my photos, I always see myself squinting. Mm -hmm. Am I right to think there's a connection with not getting enough sunlight regularly and squinting? So, I mean, that, that's a very um, interesting question, you know, whether there's an association there or not. Um, I would say that um, in terms of, uh, you know, light exposure, like, for example, screen time um, and squinting, definitely the blue light that comes off of our devices, whether it's our phone or a tablet or a computer, or even the TV um, can, you know, prolonged exposure to blue light can definitely predispose to light sensitivity and um, many other things as well. Uh, light sensitivity, headaches, dryness, um, blurred vision. And this is a syndrome called uh, digital eye strain or computer vision syndrome. So that definitely is the case. Now, whether that translates into when you go outside, if you're more light sensitive, um, it's really you know, it has not really been looked at formally. What I would say is that, you know, people who are very light sensitive outdoors and in natural sunlight, um, they do tend to have lighter colored eyes. Um, I don't know what color your eyes are, but they do tend to have lighter colored eyes. There are some other conditions that can also make people very light sensitive, even in uh, natural light or also with fluorescence as well, but uh, they include dry eyes and um, something called um, uh, uveitis, which is inflammation inside the eye, which is not that common. And then also another not so uh, common condition called blepharospasm, where people are extremely light sensitive and they blink a lot um, in, in bright light or any kind of light, actually. And their eyes feel like they just want to close. So um, 
So again, the vast majority of people will probably have light sensitivity simply due to the color of their, you know, their pigmentation in their eyes, but others may have dry eye or some of these more rare ocular conditions. Yes, I have brown eyes. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to say, I have brown eyes also, and I'm uh, a pretty dark brown eyes. I'm extremely light sensitive. And the reason I'm light sensitive is because I have migraine. And so that's another, I didn't mention this before, but that's another condition that can make people extremely light sensitive and just want to squint or always wear their sunglasses when they're outside. So people with migraine um, also have this issue. Once I was on a plane with all the lights dimmed and the windows were closed and the passenger sitting next to me opened the window and I got hit by direct sunlight immediately and I got an intense migraine. But meanwhile, my husband and everybody else also looked and they were fine. So why Mm -hmm. are some of us more affected by sudden bright lights? Um, So, you know, it's, I can't explain that. Uh, I wish I could, but um, certain types of light can certainly trigger a migraine, especially, you know, if your pupils, so when we're in the dark, what happens is our pupils, they get larger. And when we have, when we're in brighter situations, our pupils constrict. And it could be that the sudden change from, you know, being slightly in a dimmer environment to sudden bright light coming at you, um, can trigger migraines. I mean, it's definitely the case. I've heard about it in many of my patients. I have also experienced it where a sudden change will trigger migraines. Um, And it may have to do with, well, first of all, our eyes exquisitely connected with our brains. Um, I'm also, I I do integrative and functional medicine, but I am also a neuro-ophthalmologist. So so, um, the connection between the eye and the brain is very, very important. And, you know, when we have a sudden bright light coming at us, there are um, our uh, sympathetic and parasympathetic systems get activated or, you know, the balance between them can get thrown off and that can lead to chemical changes in the brain. It can lead to constriction of blood vessels in the brain that then may lead to a migraine. So there's kind of a cascade of events that can potentially happen uh, that may explain how, you know, light triggers can, can, can or light can trigger a migraine. Um, it's not fully, the whole pathway is not fully understood. There's actually a nerve on the cornea, the surface of the eye, called the trigeminal nerve. And that nerve also is um, is implicated in migraine. So it could also be, you know, uh, triggering that, that surface nerve may also trigger changes in the brain. We just don't know yet. On the topic of migraines, much of my audience, they're women with female hormonal imbalances, PCOS, endometriosis, estrogen dominance, and so forth. This demographic especially suffers from migraines, sometimes chronic, Mm -hmm. myself included. Are there any ways that we can lessen the amount of migraines we suffer? Oh, I love this question. This question is actually very near and dear to my heart because as a migraine sufferer myself, I have been there and I've been through this process. So um, so I just want to share with you first my story and then I can kind of uh, talk a little bit more about what my uh, recommendations are for prevention of migraines. So so basically, I started to get migraines when I was in med school, maybe just once every year or every two years. And then as time went on, as I got older, I got them much more frequently. And there was a very stressful period in my life about five or six years ago um, when I wasn't taking care of myself. I wasn't eating properly. I never really ate very well, but I was, especially in this time, really not nourishing my body properly. I wasn't sleeping enough. I was under tremendous amount of stress and I'd started to develop migraines every single day. So basically I had a migraine for over two years straight and I went to 
I live in New York City. I went to the top headache specialist I could find, my colleagues. I went to go see them all. And basically what happened was they would just give me a prescription after prescription after prescription of try this medicine. You know, this is the latest new migraine drug. Try this. And so I had all these different treatments that I tried, nothing worked. Absolutely nothing worked. They either uh, gave me side effects or they just made me sleepy and I felt like a zombie. So at some point I decided to take matters into my own hands and I said, you know what? I just can't live with it like this anymore with a chronic daily migraine. I need to do something. And so I started to research other ways to treat migraine. And if you research it, you will see that there are quite a few natural treatments out there that work very successfully for migraine without all of those pharmacologic side effects. And so what I realized is that um, supplements, like for example, uh, magnesium is a wonderful uh, way to treat migraine or B-complex vitamins. And then the other main thing that not one of my doctors, migraine doctors had asked me was, you know, what is my diet like? What is my lifestyle like? Like, what are my, what are my habits like? And once I started to really look into that, I realized that, you know, a lot of, a lot of my migraine was just coming from my not taking care of myself properly. And um, my diet at that point consisted of just lots of um, processed food, um, I was having lots of sugar, like simple sugars, and um, I was having tons of caffeine. I was having eight to 12 caffeinated drinks a day. I mean, that's crazy that I was having that. And not one of my doctors ever asked me what I was doing in terms of my nutrition and lifestyle. So once I um, really addressed a lot of those issues, I um, it didn't happen overnight, but I changed my diet and slowly shifted more towards a um, much more kind of um, whole uh, plant-based diet, uh, plant-rich diet, I should say, not plant-based, um, but plant-rich diet. And um, and then I cut out a lot of the processed foods. Um, soda was a big, you know, a, I was, you know, really addicted to, to diet cherry Coke or Coke, cherry Coke zero. I cut that out, uh, cut out the caffeine and slowly I started to get better. And I realized, I said, wow, you know, this, these simple interventions made such a big difference in my own symptoms. I wonder if they're going to work for my patients because I, I actually take care of a lot of migraine patients. About 50% of my patients have migraine or some form of headache syndrome. So I started to implement some of these recommendations for my patients. And what I realized is that they started to get better. Um, I'll never forget this story. I actually had one patient, she was in her 70s, and she had migraines for most of her life. Over 50 years, she was suffering with migraines. She wouldn't even leave the house because of light sensitivity, and you know, she was just always in pain, and she was um, very, very dejected, very depressed and debilitated by all this, all these symptoms that she was having. And she came to see me, and she'd already been to see maybe 10 other headache specialists, and I asked her, I said, why did you, you know, why did you come see me? You've already seen so many great doctors. And she said, well, you know, my my, ne my niece came to see you and you helped her. So I thought maybe I'll try to come to see you. So I, I gave her my regimen, which again included um, magnesium, B-complex. I also use essential oils in my practice. Um, and I also use um, uh, special um, glasses, which are um, light uh, filtering glasses for light sensitivity and migraine. And I gave her my nutritional recommendations and I said, come back in six weeks and we'll see how you're doing. So when she came back, she said, oh, my goodness, Dr. Bannock, you changed my life. And I said, really? And I didn't think that this, you know, that she would have this amazing response. But somehow, you know, these interventions 
really impacted her severity and frequency. So instead of having a headache every day, she was having headaches. She was down to maybe two or three days a month with her headaches. And she said, you know, now I can, I'm so grateful because now I can have a normal life again. I can go out. I can spend time with my friends and my family. I can go shopping. Now her husband wasn't very happy because now she was shopping too much. You know, she couldn't, with, she couldn't stand the fluorescent lights before in stores, but now she was able to go out there. And um, it really made a big difference. So I think for, for your listeners, you know, if they are on migraine therapy, yes, sometimes pharmacologic agents, there is a role absolutely for pharmacologic treatments. But I think for long-term migraine management, um, it really is a matter of looking at, you know, what um, what are your potential triggers in terms of perhaps your diet, your uh, caffeine intake, um, other stressors in your life, how can you mod- modulate those stressors, sleep patterns. You know, are, for people who have migraine, our bodies really crave regularity. So that means going to bed at the same time every day, waking up at the same time every day, um, having regular hydration is really, really important. So make sure you're hydrating very well um and um and if you kind of put all this together it does again it doesn't happen overnight but you know trying to slowly implement some of these changes you will gradually notice a decrease in the frequency and severity of your headaches and hopefully what my goal is to try to get people to the point where i can get them off of medications and i have been very successful in getting people off of their migraine meds um, and just managing them with natural interventions alone Um, now i i know you had mentioned that some of your um audience also has um you know some hormonal issues or or, um, endometriosis and perhaps estrogen dominance um that is another huge topic in terms of the link between hormones and migraine um definitely we know that some women are predisposed in the around the time of their cycle like in the perimenstrual area uh, time frame or uh, some some women even premenstrual but um in terms of uh trying to help manage those symptoms, what I would say is, yes, do all the nutritional, all those things that I mentioned, but also perhaps take um, some phytoestrogens to help support your um, your hormone levels, especially during times of significant fluctuations in estrogen. We think that um, during certain times of the cycle, when our estrogen level drops very quickly, that's when pe- women are, are more, more predisposed to migraine. So um, if you can support your estrogen level naturally using, using phytoestrogens, that can sometimes make a big difference. As well. There's a popular doctor online and he has a big following and he claims that we're all blue light toxic now because we spend too much time indoors with artificial lights on computers and devices and he states that we need to get daily exposure to sunlight not mi- midday not exactly that time but early mornings to keep our eyes healthy And he's totally against sunglasses during the day because he says it makes your eyes weaker. Do you think there's any truth to that or is he just a little off? I, I've uh, so I've I've heard a couple of people talk about this, you know, that um that sunglasses are not good for us. You know, it's um it's preventing us from getting the healthy rays that we're supposed to get naturally from the sun. So, you know, that you could argue it both ways, but let, let me just first talk about um sunlight in general. So sunlight has many different wavelengths in it. It has UV rays, which are UVA, UVB, UVC, which are the the shorter wavelengths. Then it has, it emits visible light, 
So that's basically the colors of the rainbow. So uh, from from um, basically violet to red, and then there's infrared light, um, which doesn't really come that much from the sun. But um, but so sunlight. Um, what we need to protect against are the UV rays. So UVA and UVB rays, because these rays, um, in in high amounts, they can potentially damage certain structures in the eye. They can cause, for example, burns in the retina. If you stare at the sun for too long, you will get a retinal burn. And that basically is irreversible. And that's why, you know, if there's ever an eclipse, you know, we always tell people don't look directly at the sun because you could potentially permanently damage your retina. But um, but then there are other, um, you know, potential ocular side effects from UVA and UVB rays. So as I was mentioning before, it um, increases the risk of cataracts. Uh, it may increase the risk of macular degeneration. It can also increase the risk of um, uh, surface problems, for example, to your cornea and to the outside of the eye. There are certain tumors that can grow on the surface of the eye from too much UV exposure. So what I typically tell my patients is, um, if it is sunny outside, wear UV protecting sunglasses. Now, the other side to this argument about sun and you know whether it's good for you or bad for you is that the sun emits blue light. And blue light um, is really important to help maintain our circadian pad, pad, rhythm, our uh, biological clock, basically. So we need blue light to tell us when it's time to wake up and to tell us when it's time to go to sleep or less less blue light when it's time to go to sleep. And, and our eyes sense that and our brain senses that. Um, so... Um, yes, we do need that sun exposure. So if you're going to be getting glasses, uh, sunglasses, for example, you don't need to get blue blocking sunglasses. You just get UVA and UVB blocking sunglasses will protect your eyes against those potentially harmful eye conditions, but you won't necessarily block out the blue rays that our body needs. Um, now, uh, the other question that people often ask me is related to blue light is, you know, could this, could our screens be damaging our eyes permanently? And this is also a topic that's controversial because um, a couple of years ago in 2018, there was a study that was published um, out of the University of Toledo, Ohio. And these researchers, what they did was they took some cells um, and they put them in a Petri dish and they exposed them to high levels of blue light. And what they found was that those cells died. And, and so then, you know, they wrote this paper and they said, oh, blue light is going to kill off your eyes. It's going to kill your retinas. We're all going to go blind from blue light exposure. Um, but I think that was, unfortunately, it was a very alarmist headline and very, it was really sensationalized quite a bit in the media. I don't know if you, if you heard about it or, or if your listeners have heard about this, but, um, you know, so there was, there was this big media scare that was created by this article. But let me just break down that research study a little bit more so you can understand it a little bit better. So what the researchers did was that they took some cells, they took actually not retinal cells or eye cells at, at all, they took cervical cancer cells. And they took these cells because they're used in a lot of research projects and they live very long. So they took these cervical cancer cells, they put them in a Petri dish, they exposed them to blue light, and then the, the cancer cells died. So, um, you know, it's kind of, it's taking the, their results with a grain of salt because these were not eye uh, uh, retinal cells. Our retinal cells called photoreceptors have, you know, tremendous capacity 
to constantly regenerate their membranes and, and they, they're they very metabolically active and they have certain mechanisms, certain um, chemical reactions that they constantly do to regenerate themselves. So they have all these protective mechanisms against various types of light. And so um, the cervical cancer cells don't have those mechanisms to protect against light or blue light. So our retinas are somewhat protected. So the bottom line is there is no evidence that a blue light will permanently damage our retinas. But um, there is, obviously, there are short-term side effects from blue light exposure, what I was talking about before, the symptoms of digital eye strain, for example, um, light sensitivity, dryness, headaches, sometimes even neck pain, blurry vision. So in order to prevent blue light um, from, you know, temporarily kind of um, affecting our vision. What I typically tell people to use is the 2020 rule, which is basically every set your timer every 20 minutes, take a break and take a 20 second break and just close your eyes. Don't look at anything. Let your eyelids close, lubricate your eyes with your tears and then start up again. So that will help increase your endurance. You know, if you're working at the computer for a prolonged period of time. Uh, now, most of us, so the average amount of time um, most adults spend on a screen is, it's ridiculously crazy. It's about 11 hours a day uh, that's been estimated. So that's, it's a tremendous amount of screen time that most of us get. So in order to try to, uh, you know, mitigate that a little bit, try to use the 2020 rule and you'll see that, that um, you'll definitely have um, less of these symptoms if you do have dry eye symptoms and, and uh, light sensitivity. My husband tends to get styes, but only during periods of high stress. What causes styes, and is there anything we can do to help prevent them? Mm -hmm. So styes are actually quite common, and they can happen at any age. Um, they can happen in babies. They can happen in teenagers, adults, and even much older people. So um, the question is, what causes them? So we have glands within our eyelids. And these tiny little glands are called meibomian glands. And um, they're almost like these little finger-like structures. And we have about 25 to 30 glands in each eyelid. So 25 to 30 on the lower and the upper and then on the other side as well. So um, these glands are very important because they secrete oils. And the oils um, help to lubricate. They basically form the very surface of our tear film and they help to lubricate our eyes. And so um, what happens with styes is that the glands get plugged up. The oils just um, are not flowing freely. They get clogged. And then um, once the gland gets clogged, it can cause like a, a swelling or a lump. And sometimes that can be, um, it can just be non-tender, but sometimes that can get infected. And when it gets infected, it can become red. It can become tender. There may even be some uh, pussy kind of material coming out of it. So that's what we call a styes when that gland gets not only clogged, but it gets infected. And the best way to treat that is um, is actually, it's just to do, really just to do hot compresses and try to get the compress as hot as possible as you can tolerate without burning your skin. So you can take a face cloth, run it under warm water, but that doesn't retain heat for very long. To really get rid of a sty, sometimes you have to put heat on for um, let's say an hour a day. So you can, you don't necessarily have to do all of that at once. You can do increments of 15 minutes several times during the day to get to that one hour a day. But the goal of the heat is really to open up the gland and let that uh, blockage drain and let, and, you know, if there is an infection and if there is pus in there to let that drain out. So um, you can do the warm 
you know, the, the warm compress with a towel. But what I like is one of two ways. You can either, you can buy a, a compress, you know, or online or in the, in the, um, in your local drugstore, and uh, the compress may have little beads inside called moisture beads. And you put that compress, if you use a microwave, you can put it into the microwave and microwave it for 10, 15 seconds. You don't need to do it longer than that. And then put that hot compresses on your uh, compress on your eyelid, and that will retain the heat and it will help open up the gland and let it drain. Um, the other option is if you don't have a microwave or you don't have access to one of these warm compresses, you can, um, you can actually take a potato and this may sound a little odd, but take a potato, cut it in half, heat it up, um, and then apply that potato to your eyelid. You wrap it in a warm ta- in a towel first, and then uh, put that on your eyelid, and that will retain the heat for longer, and um, it'll help that the glands open up and drain. So that's a quick tip that I like to use. I also wanted to say something about styes. I only got them one period of time in my life, and I found out after watching a documentary on Netflix that when you buy products like especially like mascaras and stuff like that from Amazon that they're usually counterfeit and they could be dirty and have you know no preservatives or just have the wrong ingredients in there and could be bad for you and that's what I trace my styles to just Mm -hmm. using contaminated products that were counterfeit on Amazon because it sounds like it's it's real I mean it looks like it but Mm -hmm. they can fake it yeah, yeah. I mean, that definitely is a concern. Um, you know, using any kind of product, actually, whether it's counterfeit or not. So, even products that you may think um, I make up products that you know say organic and you know um, preservative free or natural, even those can potentially block up the eyelid glands because um, you know think about it. You're you're using something whether it may have uh, particles in it or it may be metallic. Um, it may have artificial colors in it. And basically, if it's applied to the top of the gland, the gland may get blocked. So what I would say is, um, it's not that you have to stop using eye makeup products, uh, but make sure that you, at the end of the day, you do completely remove all of your makeup. And even after you remove your makeup, if you're prone to styes, maybe do a warm compress um, at the end of the day. And also at the beginning of the day, in the morning when you wake up, if you have time, do warm compresses twice a day, and that will prevent styes from developing. The other thing, um, a couple of other points about styes. So I only got styes once in my life. I'd never had them before. But um, when I was pregnant and also after pregnancy, when I was breastfeeding, um, I got seven styes and actually all different parts of my eyelids. So that was really crazy to me that I'd never had them before. And all of a sudden I started to get them. And I think that for me, my styes were related to hormonal changes associated with pregnancy. So there can definitely be that component to it. And, um, and then the other thing is, you know, if you are prone to recurrent styes, um, what I do in my practices, um, and you can ask maybe your eye doctor to do this also, is I actually use a special camera um, called uh, Lipiscan. And what that does is it basically, it can take an infrared picture of your eyelid glands. And we can see, I can see how the glands look structurally. Um, are they there? Are they missing? Uh, are the glands plugged up? Um, is there something going on, el- you know, something else structurally with the glands? So it really gives me a sense of how someone's anatomy is. And that, that way I can counsel them 
better about what to do about their styes. So for example, if they have really blocked glands, sometimes I actually use a treatment called Lipiflow to unblock their glands. And that's usually very, very effective. Um, it's a procedure that's done in the office. It's not a surgery, but it is... Um, it is a procedure, and it basically uses heat and pulsation, basically to um, to basically clean out all the glands. So you're kind of resetting your glands. It's almost like getting a, a deep um, uh, facial for your eyelids, and it's actually quite. I've had it myself a couple of times. It's actually quite nice uh, to get this because it, you really feel like you know your everything's just clean and clear, and and you're kind of starting fresh with them. Um, with healthy lids at that point. So uh, it's something that I really, uh, I think works very well and I use it a lot in my practice. Is that procedure any bit painful? So it's not painful. So I, I um, you know, it's it's uh, it's a device that goes on the, on your eyelids um, and it heats up. So there is heat involved and it heats up to 108 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's it's about the the temperature of a really hot shower. It's not going to burn your skin, but it is quite warm. And then it it uh, once the heat, what the heat does is it liquefies any blockage within the gland, and basically liquefies any you know oils. And then at the there's a pulsation that's applied, and it's uh, kind of like a regulated. It's not just you know. Um, unregulated. It's, it's very regulated pulsation that basically uh, expresses out all of that blockage. So uh, again, it works very, very well. And I would recommend that for you know any of your listeners who may be having lots of issues with their eyelids um, and who get recurrent styes. Now, it's not a procedure that I would do in a, in a child right, for for um, you know for recurrent styes. For for children, I would just keep their eyelashes clean and make sure um, you do, you're doing hot compresses. But definitely for adults, it's an it's an option. Um, the other interesting thing, you know, that since we're still talking about styes, the other interesting thing I've seen is that uh, many of my patients. Um, like to wear um, eyelash extensions. And I've actually seen a rise in the incidence of styes uh, with these eyelash extensions. They may look beautiful, but I think what's happening is that the glue that's used to, um, to secure the extensions, it actually directly plugs up the gland, it blocks the gland. And then that leads to a sty because the gland gets clogged and then it gets infected. So, um, so again, think about that as well. If you're prone to styes, you may want to forego those eyelash extensions, even though they look gorgeous, um, maybe choose a different option uh, for your eyelashes. I totally agree with the eyelash extensions. I did it once and then I got not a sty, but um, you know, with the little mites itching, mm-hmm, I got mm-hmm. that. That was terrible. Oh yeah, I know. I know. The things that we do for, for beauty sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So now I have no eyelashes, but I don't have any problems. <laughs> I do have a question about reading glasses. My husband and I have better than 20-20 vision, but somehow our daughter, during her first eye exam, she came back with terrible vision and was given glasses. And I was a bit skeptical because on the chart, she identified everything, but they said, no, she has really bad vision. So they gave her a very strong prescription. So Hmm. I got a second opinion and then that eye doctor gave her a much weaker prescription and then Mm -hmm. again I got a third opinion and I got Mm -hmm. a weaker still prescription Uh uh-huh so she was very young so she couldn't really articulate the difference in clarity and I'm like um do you see better with the glasses and she's like oh the colors are brighter and I'm like that's not what glasses are supposed to do Mm -hmm. so my question is can using an incorrect prescription ruin your eyes 
So um, it won't ruin your eyes long term. You know, it's not going to cause any structural damage to your eyes, but it will definitely cause headaches. It will make people feel uncomfortable. It will give them blurry vision. So, um, so absolutely, if you feel like if you're if you got a new prescription and you feel uncomfortable with it, um, take it back. Number one. Um, uh, take it back to the uh, to your opth- ophthalmologist or optometrist first, just to make sure that the prescription is correct. Um, and then, if it's if the you know if the prescription is correct, maybe they didn't make the glasses correctly. So then, take it back to the optical store and make sure that they were made correctly. And um, there are many times, um, kind of like what happened with your daughter, where. Um, you know, someone may on the machine, you know, when we check the prescription, it may seem quite high, but people don't necessarily tolerate such a strong prescription. And in that case, it's always best to dial it back to a level that they can tell someone can tolerate. And also, um, you know, just just to give them the the better vision that they need. Someone may not need to have absolutely perfect 20-20 vision or even better. Maybe they can get by with slightly less than 20-20 vision. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a matter of comfort as well. So um, it's great what you did because it's always it's so important. If you feel like something's not right, it's not just, you know, a, a, um, some advice I'm giving about vision health, I'm just saying in terms of general health, if you're seeing a, a practitioner or provider and you feel like something's not quite right or, you know, you just you don't feel comfortable with it, always go back and consider getting a second opinion and in some cases even a third opinion because um, it's the more people that weigh in sometimes the better. And then you can, you know, having those opinions, then you can make a decision about what may be best for you or your family member. I have read some research that found a correlation between our eyes glutathione levels and eye disease. What are your thoughts on taking glutathione for eye health? Yeah, so glutathione is considered one of the um, really most potent antioxidants. So it's considered like a super antioxidant. Um, It fights against free radical damage. It fights against um, cataracts and and, cataracts. and macular degeneration and glaucoma. The issue is that glutathione, so our bodies make glutathione. There's actually an enzyme that makes glutathione in our bodies. Um, But um, in some people, um, you know, they choose to take a supplement. The issue with the supplement is that uh, most supplement forms of glutathione don't get absorbed very well by the body. So you could be taking something at high dose and it just may not be bioavailable to you. So if you're going to be taking a supplement, you know, check with your doctor first about whether it may be appropriate, first of all, and then with the type of supplement. Um, I do know that there are other, some forms of glutathione, which are, um, they're called reduced forms of glutathione or even liquid forms of glutathione that may get better absorbed. But then there are also some foods that are very rich in glutathione. So um, in terms of how bioavailable it may be, it may be better to get the glutathione from food. So for example, um, avocado is a wonderful source of glutathione as well as um, healthy fats and vitamin E also. So um, I usually recommend for general eye health that my patients have um, either a quarter or half an avocado a day because it does have those healthy omega-3s that we talked about earlier as well. So um, so that's my, my general recommendation is it's best to get it from food rather than to take a supplement. So before we go, are there any foods you recommend that we should add to our diet for eye health or supplements that you think that generally everyone should consider? 
Mm -hmm. So um, in terms of foods, I'll just go back to that rainbow analogy I gave you before. Um, make sure that your diet has a rainbow of different kinds of fruits and vegetables. So not M&Ms and not Skittles, but but natural um, natural foods. And that way you'll get all your phytonutrients and antioxidants that you need. Um, our eyes also rely on, there's some um, particular uh eye health, what I call them uh, vitamins, even though they're not really officially vitamins that our eyes need to stay healthy, particularly our retinas uh, to protect against macular degeneration. And these are lutein and zeaxanthin. So um, they are an ingredient, there are ingredients very commonly found in a lot of the eye health supplements. So you may see that, you know, the rich in lutein, the rich in zeaxanthin. So um, again, my philosophy is try to get that from your diet first. If you feel like you may not be getting enough from your diet, um, the general recommendation for lutein is 6.5 milligrams a day. And most uh, people, at least in the U.S., only get one or two milligrams a day. So most of us are probably deficient in lutein. So if you can't increase that in your diet by having lots of um, leafy greens and other colorful fruits and vegetables, then you may want to add a supplement. In terms of zeaxanthin, the recommended dose is, um, there's no official recommended dose, but we think that it should be about two milligrams a day. And again, most of us don't get that. So if you really feel like you may be deficient, then an eye health vitamin or supplement may be beneficial. Um, I've done a lot of research on, because there's so many eye health supplements out there. You know, if you go to the health food store, you can see shelves of, of different supplements. You know, the question is, which one do you get? Or if you Google it, or if you look on Amazon, you know, there's so many choices. Um, unfortunately, there's no single supplement that has everything in it. So um, for at least for eye health. So, but I'll just kind of list really quickly um, which ones I would suggest that you look for. And maybe you need to do like a combination of a couple of different ones to get the full spectrum. But I would say um, for sure, lutein zeaxanthin, which I mentioned before, astaxanthin, which is also an, a very powerful antioxidant. It comes from marine animals, uh, but it can also be taken as a supplement. So for example, it can come from salmon, uh, trout, it can be found in shrimp and krill as well. Um, not so much, there really is not found in plant-based foods, but mainly again, marine organisms, but you can take it as a supplement. The other ones that I would say are vitamins A, C, and E, um, have a good source of collagen uh, in either as a supplement or in your diet, um, and then the omega-3s. And then there are plenty of antioxidants. So you were mentioning before glutathione, that's one of them. Another one is alpha-lipoic acid, or ALA. That's also uh, wonderful for eye health. And then there's an amino acid called carnitine, which is also thought to be very good for eye health as well. So uh, just kind of an overview of you know the, the types of supplements that may be beneficial for vision. What are some specific ways that people can work with you either online or in person? Oh, thank you so much for, for asking. So um, the best way I would say is to contact me through my website. Um, I do offer 10 minute complimentary phone consult. So if you have a specific eye health question um, and um, you know you wanted to just talk about it, I can maybe point you in the right direction of what to do. If you're in the New York area, I'd be happy to see you as a patient. If you're not in the New York area and you just wanted to get uh, go a little bit more in depth, um, I do also offer Skype consultations. So these are either uh, 30 minute or 60 minute Skype consults. And I do do record review as well. So I would like to see, you know, what records you have from your eye doctor or any other 
uh, provider before doing that consult. And then um, also, I also have, um, I'm pretty active on social media. So um, I have two Facebook groups that I invite anyone to join. One is called Envision Health, and uh, that's E-N Vision Health. And in that group, I talk a lot about um, protecting vision uh, through nutrition and lifestyle. So I talk about the various foods that are good for vision and then other tips, including um, uh, you know the glasses and, um, and exercise and, and sleep and things like that. Um, and then my other Facebook group is called Ion Migraine. And in that group, I talk about natural ways to manage migraines. So I, again, I invite anyone to join. And also I'm very active on Instagram as well. So uh, please uh, follow me if, if you're interested in eye health. I post a lot about um, great tips for you know eye health protection and and I try to bust some myths on on Instagram as well. There are a lot of eye health myths out there, so uh, I try to keep it, it uh, uh, educational but also fun. Thank you so much for being with us here today, and I'm going to make sure I put all those links in the show notes. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation, and um, really, really, uh, I hope your listeners. Um, learned a little bit about vision health and please feel free to reach out to me if you have any further questions. Thank you for listening to the episode. If you made it this far, I'm sure you found some benefit to the hard work that I put into the show. Show your support by subscribing to the podcast. Leave me a voicemail question or email me at thehealthfulgypsy at gmail.com. I would love, love, love to hear from you be sure to join the Facebook group. You can find all that information in the show notes and my website, katkatibi.com. This podcast is for informational merrymakings and metaphysical purposes only. Statements and views are not medical advice. This podcast, including Kakatibi, disclaim any adverse effects by the use of information you may have heard. Opinions of guests are totally their own. This podcast does not endorse statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications, credibilities, or sanity. Individuals may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to on the podcast. If you think you have a medical problem, consult with a licensed medical physician, not just the spirit of your ancestors while on ayahuasca.